in chapter 10, Paul has been reminding the Corinthians of Israel's time in the wilderness. Um, he basically describes how the original generation uh, that left Egypt, how that generation was disqualified from entering the earthly promised land because those particular Israelites were very carnal, very much unbelieving, very much undisciplined, and these sorts of things. And Paul parallels the Corinthians to that generation of Israelites because some of those Corinthians in this church were practicing the same sins and the same unbelief and the same lack of discipline and zero bodily discipline, and they were just um, taking the mercy and grace of God for granted and indulging in all sorts of wicked behavior. And so Paul kind of points them back to the Israelites in the wilderness, and he, he gives the Corinthians six wilderness warnings. That's at least what I came up with. There's other pastors that would probably come up with more or less, but I saw six. And uh, we looked at one and two on April 16th, and then we looked at three and four last Sunday. And then, of course, this morning we will focus on five and six and pretty much close out uh, chapter 10 and close out the whole section on carnal liberty, which actually ends at chapter 11, verse 1. And then after that, we deal with carnal worship, which should be pretty, pretty exciting, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> pretty, pretty encouraging. So, but yeah, we're kind of wrapping up carnal liberty today. And if you guys could be so kind as to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, our focus will be on verse 23 all the way through to chapter 11, verse 1. Uh, when someone ver trying to be helpful divided Scripture into chapter and verse, uh, what they should have done probably was included 11.1 in chapter 10, uh, but they went ahead and added it there. So we won't fault them. The word is the word is the word. Uh, but that's where we'll end today. And I'd like to pray just as we get to work here. Oh, Lord, help us with this next set of warnings, Lord, five and six. And uh, just help us to hear and to apply and to live these truths out. It really does us no good if we're just an audience that comes to listen. Uh, we need to be disciples who come to listen and come to learn and desire to obey and to live out the word for your glory and for the good of your church. And so just help us to be not mere hearers today, but hearers and doers of the word. And we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would prevail upon our hearts in power and transform us today, conform us a little bit more to the image of Christ. And I thank you for those who are here today, and I pray a special blessing on each one, especially those who are maybe visiting for the second time. We're so excited that, that people have found us and have come in, and we pray that, Lord, that we would make them feel at home, Lord. Uh, but right now, Lord, we pray for your word as it goes out. I know it never returns void. Have your way with us. May your will be done in our hearts. We love you and pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's pick it up where we left off last Sunday and look at that fifth wilderness warning. Number five, this is the next thing that Paul is saying. He says, do not seek your own good, but the good of others. And this is represented in verses 23 to 30, the majority of the rest of our section here. 
And we can start at verse 23. He begins by saying this as he's going to draw out this point. He begins by saying, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Well, for some of you who've been with us for a little while, you know that this is a repetition, that he's already said this before. And so as he begins to sort of close out this section on carnal liberty, he comes back to this point that he's made before, really before issuing his final remarks on the subject of carnal liberty and, and more specifically on the subject of eating foods sacrificed to idols. He is just basically repeating what he said in chapter 6, verse 12. And he begins like he did back in chapter 6 by quoting the Corinthians themselves. If you notice at the, end, at the beginning of verse 23 how all things are lawful is in quotations. That's not Paul's saying. That's their saying. This is a motto that they had. All things are lawful. All things are lawful. What they should have been saying is all things can be awful. Uh, but they're, they're always saying all things are lawful for us because we're in Christ and we're covered by grace. So this was their motto, something they were saying all the time. And Paul brings it up yet again. Yeah, you say that all things are lawful, but I'm saying, but not all things are actually helpful. You keep saying all things are lawful, but I am saying, sure, but not all things actually build up. That's the way that you should read verse 23. They were the ones who were always saying all things are lawful. And, you know, it's true that Christians do possess... Um, the kind of liberty that allows them to engage in a great many things, um, you know, because we are indeed covered by grace. And you could look at it like this, once saved, always saved. A Christian is saved by the grace of God. They're kept by the grace of God. And so there's a, a number of things that they could engage in that are just, nothing's going to pull them out of salvation. Nothing's going to pull them out of the grace of God. So that is true in a sense, but I think for the Corinthians, they were thinking that way, but they were also abusing that grace. In one sense, Paul is agreeing with them. All things are, in a sense, lawful. If you're saved by grace, there's nothing that you can do to sin your way out of that grace or out of salvation. Paul agrees and believes that assurance of salvation is a very real thing. And some have challenged Paul on his writings, specifically in chapter 7, really chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. They've challenged the way he's been teaching here because in some ways it sounds like you could lose your salvation. You know, Israel didn't make it into the earthly promised land. Does that mean that us real Christians can't make it in? Right? So it, you can infer or draw that out of what Paul is saying. But let me tell you, that is not what Paul has been saying. He believes in assurance. He believes that if you are truly saved, you will never not be saved. But there are things that he says here that draw out whether a person really is or really isn't saved. Obviously, an entire generation of Israelites were not actually spiritually saved. But he does agree with them that all things are lawful in, a, in the sense that nothing can pull you out of Christ. You know, what did he write at the end of chapter 8 of, of Romans, right? You know, death can't pull you out. Principalities can't pull you out. There's nothing that can. So he agrees with them 
in that sense. Like theoretically, all things would be permissible since nothing can dislodge a believer from saving grace. He does agree with that. That's the assurance. But he is saying, even though that be true, not everything that you engage in is actually helpful. Right? There's a great many things that you can engage in that won't make you unsaved, but they're not going to be helpful. They're not going to be helpful to you. They're not going to be helpful to others. They're not going to be helpful to the cause of Christ. Right? So even though your salvation is secure and all things are, in a sense, permissible, maybe they're not helpful is what he's saying. And that's Paul's contention here. The thing is, the Corinthians loved their liberty, right? So much so that we've been calling it carnal because they engaged in all sorts of unhelpful, diabolical things. But the Corinthians, they were engaging in all sorts of stuff that wasn't necessarily unlawful in a sense, like eating foods offered to idols in the market. That's not necessarily unlawful, but it certainly might not be helpful or build up. That's his point. And so I can eat what I want to eat. You can eat what you want to eat. Obviously, I eat what I want to eat. My shirt is puffed out a little bit, right? You know, a little girth here. Uh, but we know even from a dietary standpoint that not everything that I would eat would be helpful to my body. I mean, McDonald's, there's no quality. It tastes good, but there's no qualities there. I know the Daltons love their jack-in-the-box burger on Sunday. I don't say this to slam them because I hoof down Big Macs like you can't believe. But there's, you know, it tastes delicious. People say, why would anyone eat that food? Because it tastes really good. And those who make it know that. But what health benefits are there? So just from a dietary standpoint, you can eat anything you want, but, you know, might not be all that helpful to you. You might not feel good after eating it. Taco Bell, for example. Oh. <laughs> Whew. So, you know, from a dietary standpoint, we get this. From a spiritual standpoint, it's really the same principle. There are things that you can engage in, but they're just not going to be helpful. They're not going to build others up. If you have a spiritual diet that consists of bad things, it's not going to be good for you. And that's really kind of what he's driving at because the whole section's been focused on food. Like eating food sacrificed to idols is permissible, but it's not helpful if there's someone there with me who is, has a weaker conscience and now stumbles knowing that I just ate a burger that was devoted to Zeus. It sounds silly, but that's what's going on here. So first of all, the burger, dietarily speaking, is not good for me, but it's certainly not good for this brother or sister over here who thinks that I should never touch such food. So you can see how it would be permissible and also not helpful. Amen? You get it? So that's what he's talking about here. Uh, you know, you don't want believers questioning your behavior at times, even though something is free for you to do and it's not inherently wicked or wrong or evil, you don't, you want to be above reproach. You don't want believers coming to you constantly questioning. The, the way they'll do this usually is over alcohol, right? You know, you, you, as Christians, I don't think that we should publicly display alcohol consumption. 
I don't. I think it's something that it, it's a freedom and a liberty that you have, but I think it's something you should practice amidst other people who are like-minded and do that to the glory of God. But I don't think you should do it in a public setting. I, I'm guilty of that. I don't think you should do it where there might be a critical eye, a weaker brother or sister. Um, for example, if Ted, I don't know any Ted's, Ted Kennedy, I shouldn't say him because he would love to go drink with me. Uh, that was a terrible joke. Uh, but let's just say Ted, for example, let's say he and I are going to go out and get a bite to eat, and I know he's a recovering alcoholic. I'm not going to order a beer while I'm with him. I might order an O'Doul's just to mess with him. No, I wouldn't do that. Uh, but you, you understand what I'm saying? Propriety, knowing what is right. I'm not going to drink around somebody like that. And I don't drink that much to begin with, but knowing when and where to practice your liberty. Now, with these Corinthians, they were just, hey, let's go down to the festival. Let's go down to the feast. They, they, didn't, they weren't thinking about others at all. It's not that they didn't care. I just don't think they were mindful or mature enough to know that they could be causing someone nearby to stumble. And so when you have believers with you, you need to be mindful, but also if you're around unbelievers, because unbelievers have even less understanding of what we believe and what we're about. An unbeliever could get tripped up just by seeing a Christian drink a 3% alcohol beer. Because in his mind, Christians aren't supposed to be drinking anything. And um, how should you respond to that? Just don't drink around them. That's the easiest way to do it. But you could have an unbeliever, you could cause a believer to stumble. You could cause an unbeliever to really question your convictions. And, you know, I, I, you guys are always talking about how different you are, yet you're here just like me. I've had three beers, you've had four. Okay, that's a terrible example that we're setting. So you can cause a believer to stumble and you can trip up an unbeliever as well to get them to call your confession into question. So it was permissible for them to eat these foods provided that they weren't around weaker believers or that they weren't causing unbelievers to question their behavior. Um, but at the same time, even though some of this was permissible, it just wasn't helpful. And Paul says something really, really good in chapter 8, verse 8. He says, foods do not commend us to God. So eating and drinking doesn't have any kind of spiritual quality or anything to it. Uh, it it's, not, it's not bringing us closer to the Lord or leading us away from the Lord in a sense. God is not like super happy with me when all I eat are vegetables and super ticked when all I eat is tri-tip. In fact, I'm convinced that God likes a steady diet of both. Just throw in some salad with your smoked tri-tip and wow, God is really happy. Not really. And food doesn't commend us to him. It doesn't make any kind of difference. Um, so foods are in a sense neutral and we have liberty to enjoy these things, but the engagement in those things may not be all that helpful for others, may not build up is what Paul says. Build up what? The body of Christ. That's what he's talking about, Ephesians 4.12. In fact, the free expression of our liberties amidst all sorts of different people could be counterproductive and not build up but actually be tearing down. 
the church in a sense. I know the church is built by Christ and nothing will ever stand against it and all that. But the minute that I cause a weaker brother or sister to stumble, I'm not building up the church. I'm tearing it down. Uh, the minute that I cause an unbeliever to question our, my faith in these sorts of things, that's, you know, unless I'm just preaching the gospel and they're mad at that, that's fine because the gospel's a stumbling block. But if they're stumbling because of my behavior that looks like the world's behavior, how is that going to be helpful? That's not at all helpful. That's not going to progress anything. It might drive them further away from Christ. Paul's point being the Corinthians were like the ancient Israelites in this regard. They just loved their liberty. They just loved their freedom. And, and sadly, they were using their liberty to satisfy carnal cravings, right? I mean, um, if you have a strong attraction to food, that's a carnal craving. And an attraction to alcohol, that's a carnal craving, these sorts of things. So they had a very, very similar appetite to the ancient Israelites in that regard. We love our freedom and we want the meat pots from Egypt and we want the good food and drink and we want these things and we don't care. We just want what we want. Instead of spending their liberty on others, other Israelites in the wilderness is what they should have been doing, they were spending it on themselves and indulging in earthly delights such as food and sex, and the list goes on and on and on. So there was a misuse of their liberty. They, they had the liberty, things were permissible, but things they were doing weren't helpful, didn't build up. And they indulged in every way and said, we're under grace. It's okay, I'm in Christ. Nothing can dislodge me. So I'll fornicate. Okay, that, that, is, that, is, that is not a Christian mindset. That's not the way to think. Verse 24, he says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. That's our point, right? That's Paul's big point here. In fact, this might be the clearest, most concise statement on the use of Christian liberty anywhere in Scripture. I mean, this is, this is it. This is the crux of the matter. This is the big, big point, right? If, if you wanted to have a conversation about Christian liberty, this might be a good way to start. Okay, sure, yeah, you're free. Sure, all things are permissible. But do you understand that God has called you to live a life where you don't seek after your own good? Do you understand that that's what your calling is? And your calling is higher than your liberty. Your liberty falls under that. So let no one seek his own good. Okay, then whose good should I seek after? If I'm not supposed to seek after my own good, whose good should I be focused on? Thy neighbor, Paul says. The purpose of our Christian liberty is not merely for our own good, but for the good of others which is the opposite of the way the Corinthians looked at. Anything goes was their motto. Everything is permissible. No, no, no. What they should have been saying is, I'm not supposed to be after my good, but the good of that guy right there, or that brother, or that sister, or Chrissy, or Dustin, or Keith, Elsa, Tim. That's who I am to be focused on, not this, but this. That's his point here. That's what he's saying. Paul is saying that we have been given freedom in Christ, not merely for our own good, but for the good of others, especially those who are closest to us, which is represented by the word neighbor. 
Neighbor doesn't mean the guy that lives next door. It could be if that's the closest person to you. In fact, I think my kids are my neighbors in a way because they're even closer. They're in the bedroom next door. So, but it's whoever's in closest proximity to you, right? The guy that lives next door, the gal that lives across the street, the guy that lives down the street. If you live out in the country, the guy that lives in Lathrop, I don't know where you live. I do know where you live, actually. This is a small church. But it's whoever's closest to you and whoever you're whoever you're next to at that moment or nearby at that moment, that's the neighbor. And he or she is the person that you should be focused on, not you. So this is what Paul is saying. This is a, a crazy, crazy truth here. And he expressed the, the exact same sentiment in regard to food, because that's really what he's been talking about here. He, he expressed the same thing about food in Romans 15, 2, where it says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good and build him up. He's talking about food again there in that context. And in, 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 in the Roman church, in the Roman churches, the churches that were throughout the, that Roman province or wherever he wrote to every, every church in that province, it's like they had the same kind of focus on food. You know, hey, we've been delivered and we've got all this idle meat and all this stuff. It's just like the Corinthians and this is such great stuff. And Paul's saying, look, that... Your freedom and your ability to eat these things, that shouldn't be the focus of your life. It's funny how this works. We're, it's in our fallen nature, I think, but still, we still deal with it. When we hear the word that you have freedom, there's an impulse in this fallen nature that just wants to go nuts, just wants to go crazy, just wants to do whatever it wants to do. And then when we hear we're saved by grace alone and we can never lose that, whew, that's a combination of flesh and freedom, and then so of course we get selfish. Of course we get self-absorbed. Of course we get self-centered. And Paul in two cases says, You're, you have the liberty. You have the freedom in Christ, but it's not to be spent on yourself only. The Corinthians were really apt to think of their own rights and freedoms instead of what profits and edifies others. Apparently some of the Believers at Philippi as well as Rome, but at Philippi had the same problem. Paul said this to them, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. <laughs> Let each of you look not only to his own interests. Okay, he's not saying abandon all your own interests. Don't eat so the other guy can eat. He's not saying that. He's just saying don't look only to your interests, but he says, but also to the interests of others Philippians uh, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. I know the gals just studied that whole book. What a phenomenal letter that is. Same issue here. Really, um, you've got three churches now. You've got the church at Corinth. You've got the churches of, 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 of Rome, if you want to call it that, the Roman churches. And then you've got the church at Philippi, all addicted to their liberty, all focused on their liberty, all focused on what they can do. What happens when you tell a child it can do something or he or she can do something? Do they do it with much gusto? This is what happens with us. And Paul is saying, you have the liberty, but it's supposed to be centered on others. Use your freedom to serve others, not just yourself. According to Paul, really in those three instances with those three churches, especially in 1 Corinthians here, liberty spent on self, that is not the best use of liberty. Nor is it the way of love, which he's going to talk about quite a bit in 1 Corinthians 15 in particular, because 
what is love? It is not self-seeking. It is selfless. So if I understand that I have all this liberty and I, it's like a bank account and I just want to spend it all on myself, that is not a proper use of my liberty, nor is it the way of love. I'm now loving self and to love self is really an abomination. I'm not to hate myself to the point of throwing myself off a building. I am to cherish Dave and to love Dave more than I love myself or Louie or anyone else in here. This is the focus of us. And who did this to begin with? Who set the example? Christ. Christ didn't come down and say, I'm here for myself. If he'd have done that, he wouldn't have went to the cross, right? He's the one that set the example. And Paul is also setting an example here. J. Mac wrote, and this is good, our primary concern should be for the good of our neighbor. And he says that is a principle that is contrary to basic human nature. So that's what we should be about. And when you say amen and then find it hard, to difficult, hard and difficult to pull that off, well, you can just agree with him. It's a, something that is totally opposed to our own nature. In our fallenness, what is most important is this. That's the problem that we all have. That's the struggle, right? I, I don't think of myself as an idolater. I don't have little, you know, totem poles at my house and statues of Mary and these sorts of things. But what's incredible to me is every time I get in front of a mirror, I see a shiny golden idol. And then I say to myself, man, it's starting to fall apart. What kind of man-centered products do they have to get rid of these bags under my eyes? No, I don't do that. I probably will. Uh, but, you know, every time, I'm, I'm not an idolater. I don't, have, I don't have a little Zeus that I carry. Hi, Zeus, how are you today? Will you protect me today? Oh, look, he said yes. I mean, I don't do that. But every time I look in the mirror, I see a five foot 11, I'm not going to say my weight, but I, 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 it's a little less than it was, um, but not much because I cheat. I told you, Big Macs, but I see, I see an idol. I, I, I see an idol. I see, uh, you know, Nebuchadnezzar had a big old statue of himself made, and we laugh at that, go, ha, what an idiot. And I look in the mirror, and I see a Philokinezer. <laughs> I do. I do because, because there's something in me that drives me to serve self above all others. And that is the Adamic fallen nature, the flesh, the old man that, that still resides, the very thing that I want killed off for good. You too? Don't you hate it? I mean, I love it, <laughs> but I also hate it. And it's after I love it so much that I actually hate it even more. When I shower myself with such goodness, then I'm like, what a scum. I mean, this is, this is the battle of our lives. And so MacArthur nails it. It's a principle that's contrary to basic human nature. And do we not see this widespread as a philosophy in our culture? Everything in our culture says you are what is most important. Find an identity and be that, and then we'll make everyone bow to it. And if they don't, we'll put them in jail. You talk about narcissism. You talk about self-focus. I've never seen it at this level. 
in America. It's unreal. It's unbelievable. So this, this whole principle of dying to self just to serve Bruce or someone other than me, to see Carla is more important. It is contrary to my very nature, but it's what I must do. Carla, I love you. So, and I mean that in a brother to sister way. Thank you. Just got to clarify here. Don't want to get weird. My wife's in the back going, oh, great. Here we go. So verses 24 to 25, this is what he says next, which is amazing because it sounds contrary to what he just said. Paul is really good at pulling the old switcheroo and causing pastors like me to shake their head and go, I don't want to do this anymore for a career. Verses 24 to 25, he says, eat whatever, don't, he says, don't seek your own good. And then he says, eat whatever is sold in the market. <laughs> what the heck? Is this, what is this guy doing? Eat whatever is sold in the market without raising any question or on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. All right, so they almost sound like competing statements. Don't be about yourself. Be about others. But go get yourself a good meal from St. Mark. This principle, really, what you're seeing here is, is just, a, it's just a counterbalance to the previous statement that he made in 24. The true welfare of others should always be our first concern. That's just, that's just it. That's the guiding principle of the whole text. That's the whole purpose of liberty. So he's not contradicting himself. This should always be our first concern. And yet their standards, those whom we aim to serve and aim to please and aim to be helpful to, when we sacrifice self to do that, we have to remember that others' standards should not rule everything we do. This is really what he's saying here. Look, you are not to be focused on seeking your own good per se. You should be focused on others. But you can't let what they think and believe rule your life to the point where you never, ever, ever enjoy any of your liberty. You never, ever, ever do anything at all. This, this is exactly what he means here. So it's not contradictory. It's actually very helpful because I was ready to cancel everything. As much as possible, we should keep from offending the weaker consciences of fellow believers, but we should not go to legalistic extremes of, you know, making great issues out of every little thing we do. Kind of like a self-focused virtue signaling kind of attitude and the canceling of self all the time because of the fear of others or what they might think. You don't want to get into that kind of legalism where you strip yourself of everything and only live in light of what everyone else thinks. That is a, that's what our country is doing. <laughs> you don't want to do that. Again, Paul uses the illustration of food offered to idols, right? That's really what he's been doing through the whole section. If a Corinthian Christian goes to the market, he does not need to be concerned about where the meat came from. That's what he's saying. You know, if you want to go down and get some steaks, you know, you don't need to go up to the counter and, hey, Mr. Butcher, how you doing? I'm doing great today. All right. Well, those, those, those steaks right there look really good. I, I, maybe I'd like to get a couple of those. What do they run? They're $29 a pound. I'll, uh, how about the tri-tip next to it, you know, because meat's so expensive? And then you follow that with, by the way, was this meat sacrificed to an idol? Paul's saying you don't need to be concerned about that. You, you just go in and buy the meat. You don't need to go in there and have that as a guiding feature. Like everything you do, I need to check everything I do. Is that what our culture's wrapped up in now? But it's all virtue signaling. Everyone's a hypocrite. Nobody's living this stuff out. 
But Paul is saying, don't do this to yourself. If you go into a market to buy meat, don't be concerned about where it came from. Don't ask the butcher. Don't raise any concerns. Don't raise a scene, right? I say if you go buy a nice, it's got some good, a good fat layer on it and all that, a good pork butt, because I just love pulled pork. You go in, you buy something like that, take it, smoke it on your pit, boss. Woo, right? Smoke that sucker all day, nine hours or so. Enjoy it with your family with a clear conscience. Don't be sitting there eating it going, I wonder if this was sacrificed to Molech. <laughs> Paul's saying you don't have to do that. Don't let what others think guide every aspect of your life. In fact, don't even be thinking about them if they're not there. If they're there, be mindful of what you're doing. If they're not there, you're going to let them, who's on the other side of town, you're going to let what they might be saying to you in this moment, you're going to let them guide your whole dinner and make you throw out a beautiful pork butt. And if you do that, call me. I'll come get it. <laughs> I am George Costanza. I'll take the eclair out of the trash can. <laughs> You've seen the episode. I wouldn't go that far. But he's saying, you, you, you know, you, you have liberty, wonderful Practice it safely, but don't let the opinions or weaker consciences of others stop you from enjoying things that God has given you for his glory and your good. Because a pork butt is good, especially when it's done right. Amen, Cameron? Yeah, yeah, he's real thrilled. <laughs> this principle... Uh, this principle applies even when we've had some kind of a run-in or maybe, I, I don't know if I'd call it a bad experience, but, you know, we've just had an experience with a weaker brother or sister over an issue. This principle applies even if we've had that. If they're not there, what are you going to do? Call them? Do you think it's okay now for me to have the bacon? No. Okay, thank you. Bye. I'm eating the bacon while I'm making the call. And it's thick cut, baby. You know, don't worry about what they think at that point. We should not let them dictate how we live our lives. They are here not to cancel us, but to teach us to be cautious with our liberty. Because it is a grievous sin to cause one like that to stumble. It is. It's a bad sin to cause one to stumble. But if they're not at the house, they're not where I want to exercise my liberty to the glory of God. I don't need to be concerned about them at all. Misusing our liberty in the causing of someone to stumble, that's a sin. But so is conscience binding. That is a sin to, try to, to have some kind of conviction and to try to foist and force that on every other believer you know, especially when it's just legalism, like, you know, you can't eat certain foods, or you better put that bonnet on. Are you kidding me? I may be wearing a bonnet made of hair with the way my hairline is going. It's called a toupee. I might get a three-pay. You don't, you don't, you know, wear the bonnet, pour out the beer, you know, you know, snuff out that stogie. You know, this is... Am I promoting the use of all these things? No, I'm just saying when somebody with a weaker conscience says none of us should be engaging in any of these things because they have no concept whatsoever of Christian liberty and they go around binding everyone to their underdeveloped conviction, that is sinful just as causing someone to stumble. They are now causing you to stumble in a way. 
stumble over your liberty, which is a God-given thing. Christ bought that. He purchased it. So that is equally wicked, right? Pitch the pork. You can't eat, por eat pork. You have a pants. You have a pair of pants with a patch on them. Have you not read Leviticus? I have cutoffs, bro. I, people get mixed up over patches on clothes. Or women can only wear dresses. You know, it's like... <laughs> You're trying to live out the whole old... I'm not saying it's bad for women to wear dresses. Wear them. It'd be nice to see more dresses, but it just... It, come on, man. You're trying to bind to the law. So that is wicked as well. And Paul is literally saying, you go to the market, just get what you want. Don't raise concern. It'd be weird if you went to the market and maybe you're just there with your spouse or your friend or nobody, and then you're all of a sudden striking up a weird conversation with a butcher who doesn't know anything about meat sacrificed to idols. <laughs> is this meat sacrificed to an idol? What is a sacrifice? Well, let me show you. Give me that goat in the back over there. We're just going to be weird if we raise these concerns everywhere we go. Are we not going to be perceived as weird? We already are weird. We're aliens and strangers. Let's not make it worse. Buy the meat, cook the meat, eat the meat, right? Where's the beef? I mean, Wendy's got it right. <laughs> Come on. This principle applies at all times. You just want to be mindful and careful, um, right? I think the best place to practice our liberties is in the privacy of our own home. No, I am not saying it's okay to get drunk at home. If you take that from what I'm saying, you are a buffoon. I am not saying get drunk at home. I'm not even telling you to drink at home. I'm just telling you, if you do that somehow to the glory of God, do it there. You, you, you don't have, well, you have watchful eyes if you have children. We talked about that weeks ago. Be mindful of what you're doing. But you don't have that critical person there that, you know, is dead set against something and is going to hammer you over it. You do, you do these liberties and practice these things in the privacy of your own home or in a place where it's safe outside of the view of, of everyone else. You don't have to worry about conscience-binding busybodies. You don't have to worry about causing weaker brothers and sisters to stumble, unless, of course, they live under the same roof. So you need to be mindful of that. Solomon was an interesting cat. He actually encouraged for righteous people, especially those who were being persecuted, to eat, drink, and be joyful while under the sun. Ecclesiastes 15.15. He was not promoting alcohol use or drunkenness or anything like that or gluttony. He's just simply saying that life under the sun can be very difficult, and eating and drinking and being joyful associated with that kind of time can be a respite and something that's nice to do with mature brothers and sisters or something in the midst of a hard life. This is what he's saying. It's a principle. So he's not discouraging the use of these things. He's encouraging it if that's what you want to do because life can be hard under the sun. And I think that's a good way to look at it. Is it always wise for us to engage? No. For some of us, it's not. For 20-something years, it would have been disastrous for me to do that because I'd come out of the abuse of those things. So I'm not telling you if you don't drink, hey, I can drink. You know, Ecclesiastes says so. Don't misread me. I'm saying that that is a, a wise way from one of the wisest people ever to look at it. You know, it's, it's an enjoyable thing that God has created for our good and His glory. If you can use it for that, great. But be mindful of who you're doing it around. And life is tough 
under the sun. I would just say, Paul is saying, you have liberty, go ahead and use it. Just be mindful of how you use it. This is what he's saying. It really is that simple. In verse 26, Paul says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Really, since everything belongs to God and since he has given everything that lives as food for us, Genesis 9, 3, idle meats from the market are perfectly fine. That's what he's saying. They're fine. But Christians have no business participating in idolatrous feasts at pagan temples. See, there's a difference between buying meat at a market and going to a temple where it's centered on worshiping a false god with the meat. There's a huge difference between the two. One of them is an innocent thing. You're just buying meat. The other, you're becoming a sharer in demons, is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20. And MacArthur says, after idle meat is sent to the market, like in, in that context, after idle meat was sent to the market, it's just meat like all other meat. If it's if you get it at the temple, then it's part of their system of worship, and that makes you a sharer in demons. But if you just buy it after the fact and don't care and aren't mindful of where it came from and it just looks like great quality meat and I'm buying it to eat it, have at it. Invite me over. It is, as Paul says here, since God has created everything, all the earth belongs to him, that meat in the market is just food that the Lord provides from the earth. That's what he says. That's all it is. That's the way you should look at it. Thank you, Lord, for providing this great meat. You don't have to be mindful of where it came from or what it represented at some point. Meat is meat. It is there for good and nothing good, because God created good things. Nothing good is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, is what it says in 1 Tim 4.4. 4. So that's the proper attitude and mentality with idle meats and everything else. Just be mindful of what you're doing. Verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Isn't that interesting? So we're talking about buying meat in the market. That's me going and doing that as a Christian. Now he's talking about me being invited over to some unbeliever's house to have a barbecue with them. That's what he's talking about now. This is another scenario where idle foods would be okay, right? If we have an unbelieving friend who, again, we don't really deal with it like the Corinthians did, but if a Corinthian believer had an unbelieving friend who invited them to a special event or just like some kind of reception or something like that, that they felt obligated to go to, they had to go, you know, I got to go to that, I'm the best man or whatever, then that person, it's perfectly fine for that person to eat whatever is put before them. And they don't have to raise any questions or any concerns. They don't have to ask about the origin of the food. They don't have to do any of that. In their mind, what's being put out for them is just meat, and they can just eat the meat and enjoy it. They don't have to say a word. Don't say, hey, did this come from the temple? You know, because you're probably going to have a hungry night when he says yes. You may end up saying, I don't want to eat it then, you know what I mean, or whatever. But don't, just, just eat it. Just eat the food. Don't be this guy. Is this roast from the temple of Poseidon? If so, I can't eat it because I'm a Christian. Oh, you know what? If I was at an event with a person who did that, I would sit on the other side of the room. <laughs> Not, just, that's, just, that's just like, maybe this guy needs some counseling. Because that, that, that was like cringe level 95. You know, and, that, and this is what some very zealous, immature Christians do. But don't be like that guy or gal. 
just eat whatever they serve with thanksgiving. Unless, of course, you have or they had a legitimate food allergy, right? If I eat that, I'll explode. It's like, well, then don't eat it. And I would just say this to the dieters. Oh, my goodness, this is such a thing today. And if you're dieting, take offense. <laughs> to the dieters, it's okay to take a night off from your diet if somebody's invited you over to eat. Well, I, 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 I you know, I, I'm here, but I can't, I'm, I'm on keto, I can't do it. I, do you have any keto? I, 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 eat, eat the food. Why? Because it's rude. It is rude. It is rude. What are you, an Adonis, a narcissist? Break it for the night. Oh, I went out of ketosis for three hours. You'll survive. I mean, seriously, people today are obsessed with their diets. I've seen people go to weddings and they sit in the corner <laughs> while everyone's enjoying all this insane grub and they're, what's wrong? I can't eat. I can't eat. I want to force feed them. It's rude, people. It's rude. It's okay. Just break it and, and, and break it like you've never broken anything in your life. <laughs> Just like, you know, next thing you know, you got ice cream all down. Oh, yeah, you know, don't do that. I mean, that's like, don't, don't, don't make a scene. But I'm sorry, diet people, it's okay, you'll survive. Because I think it's rude to go to something you've been invited to, especially if they paid $35 a plate or whatever, and for you to sit there with folded arms or clasped fingers and to have the look of disgust because they can't accommodate your diet. Just eat. Don't raise question. Don't say, I'm on keto. You know, uh, I tell you that there is actually, and, and you know, okay, this, I'm, I'm getting married to, okay, shut the YouTube down. <laughs> Veganism. Oh, Lord, deliver us. This, this is a religion. It's a cult. Yes. <laughs> this is cultish. I, I, I went to a wedding one time, and they had an unbelievable spread. And because there were so many vegan friends, they had to have a secondary menu for the vegans. And it was like, I could have went out and just pulled grass up <laughs> and saved you a fortune. <laughs> because the difference between what I could get off the front yard of this establishment and what you're serving them is just some fancy drizzle. <laughs> Vegans will deter, I mean, watch out for the vegans. I mean, we love vegans, right? I get it. It's okay if you want to be vegan, but it's not okay. I don't know. <laughs> Just go and eat, man. It's not going to kill you, right? Don't be that person. Just, just go and enjoy. And, 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 you know, I think that whether you're dieting or whatever, and you go and you participate with joy and thankfulness to the Lord, that is a far better witness for Christ than full abstention, looking miserable. What are you doing? I'm fasting. And it's like, oh, I'm like, you know, it's a better witness to participate and honor those you're with. Right? I think Paul's saying that in a way, but I'm adding to it. Uh, verses 28 to 29a. Now listen, here's the distinction. 
So he says, right, if you get invited, just go and eat and don't raise concern. And now he says, but if someone, you're at this event, right? It says, but if someone says to you, by the way, this food has been offered in sacrifice, he says, then do not eat it. Why? For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his, okay? So there's a definite distinction here. There is a prohibition. There is a restriction. And it's very wise. The stipulation is, is very simple. If you go to this person's house and they've got all this great food out and everything, and maybe you're there alongside of other believers, or maybe an unbeliever says it, but if somebody there informs you, informs the Corinthian of the origin of the food, that it was actually came from an idol. In fact, I just left a worship service over at the temple of Diana and scored this meat on the way out. If something like that were to happen, somebody were to inform you of that or whatever, however it plays out, then you should abstain. You should just sit there and be hungry. Oh, this is good because it's helping my keto. Not, be, not necessarily because you're being, if you eat the food, not necessarily because you're being connected with demons. That really happens at, at the place of worship, not in someone's house, even though they might be worshiping. But it, you're not doing it to stay away from the idea of being associated with demons. But Paul says you're doing it for the sake of people's consciences. And it's not our conscience that we're doing it, because we can have a clear conscience when we eat those foods, because it's just meat to us. But we're doing it because of the consciences of others. Right? Maybe the one who's informing us, we don't want them to stumble. That's the idea here. If the host is the informer and we disregard his announcement, he says, hey, by the way, this was sacrificed to whatever and we're, we're worshiping this God tonight or whatever. You know, you don't want to participate because that's going to damage your witness. That's going to show that you're willing to compromise your allegiance and commitment to Christ that you're willing to dabble in idolatry. So you, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. And that, that maybe unbelieving host that informed you of that, he's or she's going to see you as a hypocrite. And we're already hypocritical enough. We don't need to bring more of that into this. If another guest is the informer and maybe a fellow Christian, we need to abstain because we could cause that weaker brother or sister to stumble if we refuse to abstain. This is what Paul is saying. So, in a way, when it comes to food sacrifice to idols, maybe for the first time in reality, ignorance is actually bliss. If I don't know, oh well, I just eat it as meat, right? That's what he's saying. If you don't know and you're not asking questions, just enjoy. If somebody informs you, abstain. If you're a weaker conscience, abstain. This is what he's saying. He literally, it's almost like an ignorance is bliss kind of scenario here. If we don't know, who cares? We don't know where the food came from and nobody says a word. Eat, drink, and be merry unto the Lord. Do it with gratitude. But the moment someone says this meat was sacrificed to an idol and they try and tie it to their religion and all that, and this could happen today with us with Sikhs and Buddhists, and you, could, you might get invited to some kind of wedding or something like that. You might want to abstain. You might want to pull back to avoid falling into reproach as you are known to be a Christian and you certainly do not want to damage weaker consciences of any other brothers or sisters that are there. Amen? That's what Paul's teaching us. Verse 29b to 30, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience, he asks. 
Verse 30, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that which I give thanks. Paul is saying that our, our own freedom should not be judged by another's conscience. That is, we should not cause our freedom to be slandered by expressing it in ways that offend a weaker brother or sister. Instead, we should give thanks for the food and for our liberty and then express our liberty by choosing not to eat the food that offends the brother or sister. How can we be thankful to the Lord for something a Christian brother or sister is going to stumble over? I mean, how could you literally say, I'm so thankful to the Lord by, while you're wrecking his people at the same party? That's a contradiction. The point Paul was ultimately aiming for in verses 11 to 30 has very little to do with, you know, what to eat and when to eat it and everything to do with the attitude and behavior of us Christians. Um, we are not ultimately at the end of the day, with all this wonderful Christ-bought liberty, at the end of the day, we are not to be focused on our own good, but on the good of others, especially other Christians. That's his point. Receptions and other food and beverage-centered events should be seen as opportunities for Christian service, not as opportunities to exercise our liberties and indulge our various appetites. A party is a perfect place to model and display Christ's humility, selflessness, and gratitude. Amen? That's the point. Now let's move to that final warning. Number six, do not miss the purpose of the Christian life. Earth to Corinthians, hello. The Israelites in the wilderness just did not understand their purpose as as, as blood-bought, because there was sacrifices made on Passover night, as blood-bought people. They didn't understand their purpose in the wilderness. And some of the Corinthians did not understand the purpose of the Christian life. We see this in chapter 10, verse 31, all the way through 11.1. 1. Just a few verses. Verse 31, listen carefully, ladies and gentlemen. So, whether you eat or drink... Why does he say that? Because the context is eating and drinking. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Mic drop. That's the purpose of the Christian life. That is the goal, the objective. That is the main thing. And I tell you, this statement right here is probably one of Paul's most famous statements, right? And of course, eating and drinking in this instance has to do with food offered to idols. And not eating and drinking in general per se. It really has to do with the, spe the specific application of eating those idol things. Believers should not fundamentally pursue their own interests, but consider what brings glory to God as they reflect on what to eat and drink. So a guiding principle for us is whenever we're going to engage in anything, even if it's eating and drinking, driving a car. This is where it's really challenging for me because there's so many ding-dong drivers out there, right? Whew. But whether you're going to eat or drink, whether you're going to go to a movie, whether you're going to drive a car, whether you're going to play baseball with your kids, whatever you're going to do, a guiding principle, a precursor, something that should come before that in all our thinking is, how will this bring glory to God? Because I want to make sure that what I engage in, even if they're regular menial tasks, 
that God is glorified through what I do. That is a guiding principle for us. And of course, liberty falls under that guiding principle. Liberty is to be used for the glory of God. Amen? Even though the matter of food offered to idols is at hand here, the statement here is a general principle that applies to every arena of life. For Paul adds the words, whatever you do, not just food and beverage, whatever you do. In every situation, then, believers should consider what brings glory to God and then act accordingly, obviously. And we see a similar statement in Colossians 3.17. He says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Um, doing all things for God's glory means doing it means that everything that we do is done for Jesus' sake, in his name, for his glory. The glory of God is the purpose of the Christian's life. We have been saved for his glory, Romans 9, 22 to 23. You think that you've been saved just so you can have your best life now? Well, you certainly will have your best life now. It might be a very hard life, but spiritually it'll be the best that you can ever have. But you haven't been saved so you can have your best life now. You've been saved for the glory of God. And when you aim for the glory of God, you have your best life now, which might even mean death. We have been saved for his glory, really for his glory. We are being sanctified for his glory. This is what Peter says in 2 Peter 3.18. So we've been saved for his glory. We are being sanctified, made more and more like Christ, right? Going through trials and tribulations and being formed and, and um, like a sculpture being chipped away at and being formed in the image of Christ. That sanctification lasts your whole life. That exists for the glory of God. And incredibly... We will be glorified with his glory, right? 2 Thessalonians 2.14, he is bringing many sons and daughters to glory through the glorified one, Christ. So, so we have been saved for his glory. We are being sanctified for his glory. And we will be glorified one day in the ultimate sense, especially at the resurrection, because of his glory. Everything about us is about the glory of God. We do not exist for ourselves. We exist for his glory. When the Israelites were in the wilderness, they ate, drank, and did whatever, not at all for the glory of God, but for the satisfaction of their own fleshly appetites, just like the pagan nations around them. You see, when you take a, took a close look at wilderness Israel, they really weren't all that different from the Canaanites and uh, the termites. And, you know, and it's, it's very sad. And that's why that entire generation was wiped out over the course of 40 years. They weren't any different. And, and this is because they were focused on their own good, focused on their own needs, focused on their own glory. You see, they were focused on their own glory. How do I know that to be true? because that is why they grumbled all the time. Grumbling occurs when some kind of felt need or something that bolsters the narcissism of self is left out or falls short. We grumble because we think we deserve something beyond what we've been handed. 
and so we complain. And the one thing that characterized the Israelites more than anything else in the wilderness was constant grumbling. A bunch of spoiled, rotten children is what they were like. Nothing was ever good enough for them. Nothing. God delivered the Israelites from Egypt for his glory. Exodus 14.4, Numbers 14.22. But when the first generation refused to really trust in the Lord, refused to give glory to God, what did he do? Destroyed and replaced it. It's that simple. The Corinthian church as a whole had not yet reached this level of rebellion, but some who were in this church and professing Christ were certainly headed toward it and down the same path. The antinomian, lawless, all things are lawful folks, that group, those were the ones that were headed down this path. They were the ones who were using grace as a license to commit immorality. They were the ones who were really in Paul's crosshairs in these chapters, those free grace loving, antinomian, lawless, we do everything we want to do and there's no consequence because we're saved by grace. That's who was in his crosshairs. Verses 32 to 33, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage but that of many that they may be saved. Paul is now tying God's glory to our treatment of others if we give no offense to Jews or to Greeks because we are being culturally sensitive to them and even adapting in a way to reach them with the gospel without compromising the truth, Paul is saying if you do that, if you follow my example in that, God is glorified. It's that simple. And if we give no offense to the church of God by causing weaker brothers and sisters to stumble through the misuse of our liberties, what is Paul saying? God is glorified by that. In saying that he endeavors to please everyone, Paul is not suggesting or stating that he was a people pleaser. He's not suggesting that he lives to gain the admiration and favor of others. Galatians 1.10, Ephesians 6, 5 and 8, Colossians 3.22 to 23, where he makes this point clear. He was not a people pleaser. He is saying that he lives for the benefit of others instead of seeking his own advantage. That's what he's saying. In 1 Corinthians 10.24, he kind of states that a little bit later in chapter 13, verse 5. In other words, Paul conducted his life so that what? Many may be saved. Hmm. Thomas Schreiner wrote, living for the glory of God is inextricably tied to living for the good of others. Believers live for God's glory when they live in a way to promote faith in all persons. Wow, that is a wonderful summary of what Paul is saying right here in 32 to 33. What Paul was actually doing right here at this point is just pointing back to the fifth warning, right? That fifth wilderness warning. How do we glorify God and fulfill that purpose to bring him glory, right? To glorify him in all things. Well, in the immediate context, it would be by not seeking our own good, but the good of others. It's really just that simple. This isn't rocket science. This is the Christian life in a nutshell. 
We do everything for God's glory. How so? By serving others. That's how it's done. That is the message here. And of course, he's contradicting the Corinthian mindset of serving self. He's contradicting my mindset at times because that's what I'm focused on. Listen here as we close up. You ever been curious as to who the greatest among us would be? You ever had that thought? Like, who would be the greatest among us? Let me tell you something right now. It's not the one with the most money because that's the way our country thinks and world thinks. It's not the one with the most toys. Remember that dumb bumper sticker, whoever dies with the most toys wins? No, whoever dies with the most toys floods his children that didn't work for it and family and the state and probate lots of good toys. Whoever, who is the greatest among us? It's not the one with the most money. It's not the one with the most toys. I remember seeing an article years ago where the guy was buried while on his Harley. That's just, it's like, okay. It's not the one, the greatest among us is not the one with the, the biggest house, the nicest house, the nicest things, the biggest portfolio, the most crypto. We know that's not true. Right? I know that. Um, it's, it's not even the brother or sister believer who has the deepest, most profound biblical knowledge. Like every time I hang around with Daniel C. Sproul, right? I'm tying Daniel to R.C. Sproul. I'm just kidding, Daniel. I'm picking on Daniel. He's a good guy. But whenever you hang out with a particular brother or sister and they're just so vast in their knowledge and wisdom, you're just wowed by it. It's not that person. It's not the person with the most reformed theology, right? That guy's like a 65-point Calvinist. He added 60 points. It's impressive. It's certainly not the pastor who preaches, although in churches there's a great many people that are under the delusion that that is the most important person in this church. I am not, and don't ever think of me that way. You're setting a bar I'll never reach. It's not the pastor who preaches. It's not even the CEO of a multi-billion dollar company, Musk, Bezos. It's none of them. The greatest among us is the one who selflessly serves others. That is the greatest person in the room every time. And they don't even know it. Why? Because he or she is like Jesus, the greatest person to ever live, who came to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. What makes a person truly great, especially in God's eyes, is when they're most like his great son, Christ. And the, really the truest and best way to be like Jesus is to be selfless and to lay down our lives for others in service. That's the key. That's the greatest person. Mark 10, 43 to 45. And yet, a servant is never greater than his master, but he is exponentially greater than those who only serve themselves and spend all of their liberty on themselves. John 13, 16. And lastly, verse 11, 1. He just simply says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 
Paul closes his section on carnal liberty with a brief but very potent exhortation. He challenges the Corinthians and all Christians, even us, a couple thousand years later almost here, to imitate him as he imitates Christ. Christ gave his life for the sake of others. And, and, and it was this salvific motive that animated Christ in his ministry, and it's what drove Paul's ministry. So, so Christ comes to lay down his life as the ultimate servant. That's what we follow. And then on top of that, Paul follows that example very well, aiming to please people, becoming like a Jew, becoming like a Greek, becoming like one not under the law, but under the law, becoming like a weak person, becoming like all to reach some, to die to self, to reach some for Christ with the gospel. Paul modeled Christ. Therefore, it's okay for us to imitate him. Christian liberty is not the only or even the most important factor to consider in life. Believers must consider what is beneficial and particularly what builds up and strengthens others. In every dimension of life, believers must live for the glory of God, and living for the glory of God is closely tied to living for the benefit and salvation of others. May we really employ all that we are, the entirety of our being, who we are as a person. May we employ all of us. May we employ all that we have. And may we employ everything that we do. May we use everything that we do or seek to do everything for the sake of the gospel, like Paul, that many might be saved. That's the objective. That's the proper use of our liberty. This was the ministry of Christ. It was the ministry of Paul. And if we follow their examples, God will be glorified. And our purpose shall be fulfilled. Amen?